When I was a child, um, I always marveled at the stand-up, sit-down routines that existed at churches. And there were moments where I didn't fully understand why we were standing up or sitting down. And, and there's these moments, these, these pregnant pauses where it's like, are we supposed to sit? Are we supposed to stand? Are they going to say it? What if they don't say it? Do we stand the whole time? What does my behavior look like in this moment? What if I sit down? Am I in trouble? Am I kicked out? So stand up, sit down, however you want. It is a joy to worship with all of you today. Um, so good morning. Hey, our ushers are here. They have, they have scripture with them. They have the Bible. They're going to be walking the aisles with the Bibles today. Um, if you need one, just, just make a connection with them and they'd be happy to get it to you. Keep it if you want to. It was great to hear Pastor Joel preach last week about Jeremiah 29. Here was something at the very beginning of his sermon that he said. I was recently reading through scripture. And when I read Jeremiah 29, I was struck by the words of the prophet. That sounds kind of, uh, who, who cares about that, right? I mean, it's not, it's not bringing anything that people think, okay, it's, it might just be filler. But listen to it again. I was recently reading through scripture when I read Jeremiah 29, and I was struck by the words of the prophet. I sent a text message to, to Pastor Joel a little bit later in the week, and I asked him how long he'd been a Christ follower, how long had he been a Christian. And he has been a Christian for more than 40 years. And in those 40 years, he was recently reading through Scripture. In the last year, he was doing a read through the Bible, and he was reading Jeremiah 29. And then he was struck. And we have to remain open to God. We have to remain open to what the scriptures have for us. After 40 years of recognizing the text, exploring the Bible, memorizing parts of the Bible, praying to God for understanding of scripture and of his divine character, it was just in the last year that Joel was struck by these words. I love that. It's, like, it's, like, it's a beautiful one-sentence testimony from Pastor Joel. He's still in the scriptures. He's still studying them. He's still looking at them. Is scripture catching your ear? Does it catch your mind? Do you let your imagination go a little wild with what might be happening in the text? Does it capture your heart? I sincerely pray it does. This is a key part of our series, Ablaze, Life and Scripture Meet. The preaching team gets to explore texts that have made an impact somewhere in our pilgrimage with Christ. It could have been decades ago, or it could have just been in the last year. I'm really looking forward to the remaining weeks in our series. There's some, there's some great stuff ahead. So if you are just jumping into our series, if you're just getting back from vacation, um, or you're new to LEFC, uh, I'm Nicholas Todd, and I serve on the pastoral team as the Minister of Mobilization. Would you pray with me as we prepare for the scripture this morning? God in heaven, I thank you for the journey that you have set my life on. And how somewhere in the last number of years, my mind was caught up in, in the, the visuals of what the Garden of Gethsemane could have looked like. 
what did it look like for you to struggle with your close friends in the garden? What did it look like for you to pray to God? What did it look like for you to be overwhelmed? What did it look like for you to bear that burden? And Lord, I thank you for whatever moment it was that I first was caught by it. Lord, today as I, uh, as I preach and as I present scripture to the congregation, Lord, I ask that I be your instrument in this time. Would I hear my own voice? Would I be preaching to myself? Lord, would you remove callousness or things that prevent us from, from hearing? Lord, would we be attuned to truth? And would we go out of this room holding on to it, prepared to take a step in the direction of truth? Lord, would you bless this time? In your name I pray. Amen. Today I want to walk through Mark 14, 32 through 50. If you received one of the church Bibles, that's on page 711 in our Bible. So you can open the Bible app. The information is there. You can search for our church in the Bible app. You can follow through the notes that are provided. You know, in a little more than a month, LEFC kicks off a new sermon series. And the big picture for it is prayer. And prayer is one of the pieces I want to focus on today in Mark 14, 32 through 50. And this prayer connects so closely, excuse me, this prayer connects so closely to humankind and our time searching, wondering, hurting, and stepping forward. So in anticipation for the future series and as kind of like a bonus, there, there is a bonus in the Bible app today. It, it'll also be on our website. There's a small list of scriptures at the very end of the notes that uh, give you a little bit more. It gives you the moments just some of the moments that Jesus prayed. Make note of them. Know they're, they're already ready for you. Consider reading through those this week as you consider what, what text are you going to be going into. This, in a way, will help prepare for a future series. It'll help build on what you hear today as we look at the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, let's, uh, let's start in the text. So, in the preceding chapters to Mark 14, you can read through a number of, of possibly stories you already know. There is the parable of the tenants, which ends quite dramatically, in my opinion. The chief priests, the lawyers, the elders, they wanted to arrest Jesus after he told the, the parable. But he knew they couldn't. They, they all knew that they couldn't arrest Jesus in front of the crowd. So, what are they going to do? We'll get the answer today. Jesus also was wowing the Pharisees and the Herodians with his words and, and how he kind of traversed their traps. Think about it. They were trappers. They would set something out there hoping that there might be a mistake. But it says in the preceding text that they were impressed with how he navigated there's also a moment where offerings are being given, and one part of the crowd was tossing in their money. I imagine a clatter of coin, metal pieces hitting each other, making just kind of a ruckus. Jesus and his disciples are sitting opposite this rattling noise, watching it happen when a widow gives two small copper coins. Now, just kind of a side note here. The idea, 
that some were giving large amounts and some were giving just two coins make me wonder about the giving pattern and tradition for giving. What if, in an effort to keep your accounting straight, money was counted immediately upon putting it in, upon the donation, and then it was announced? That would kind of play into a social game. It would play into social status. One widow, two copper coins. What do you think she would feel in that moment? So as you stood there and as you gave of your resources in an honor and shame culture, a number would be announced, two copper coins for how much you gave. If it was a high number, people would think the Lord has blessed you, that you were faithful, that you were more faithful than other people. And you then get propped up with the simple announcement of a number. And that's where the game starts because the more you give, the more honor you have, the more respect you have, the more people want to be you. Do you see what giving has just become? And then a woman shows up, gives almost nothing. It's announced. Cultural shame is put on her shoulders that she, that, that she should give more. She should do more. And as witnesses to these moments, Jesus leans into his disciples to set the record straight because they want the wealth as well. They don't want to be this woman. But he throws in an upside-down moment into their thinking. She has given more than anybody. And then after saying she has given more than anybody, they leave the temple. As Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple, one disciple looks up and is amazed at the building. Teacher, look, the stones are massive. The building's magnificent. And Jesus responds by saying, every stone would be cast down. Another upside-down moment that his disciples don't understand. Jesus and his inner circle are together on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple a short time later, when they ask privately, and I paraphrase, what? <laughs> Help us understand. What, what, do you, what do you mean the temple's going to be torn down? What do, what do you mean that, that that woman has given more than anything? And that moment, that's where they're pushing into the mystery of what Jesus is teaching. And then also they celebrate Passover. Jesus goes to an upper room of a home. He breaks the bread and shares a cup, similar to what we have already done today together. And that moment of communion is what sends us into our text of Mark 14, where we'll see how the priests, lawyers, and elders sorted through how to arrest Jesus. We'll see how the disciples responded to Jesus after a long Passover meal, and we'll see how Jesus responds to everybody. I want to read the entirety of the scripture before we take a closer look at some sections of it. So follow along in Mark 14, starting in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Let's start our study of the text this morning with verses 32 through 34. I'll read it again. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So at this point, Jesus has almost all of the disciples together. Judas had left the group during the Passover meal. Jesus and those that remained went to a place called Gethsemane. Does anybody know what Gethsemane means? It means oil press. Now Gethsemane is, in a, part, is a part of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a significant place in both the Old and New Testaments. Here's some examples. David in 2 Samuel takes refuge on the Mount of Olives. David weeps on the Mount of Olives. There's prophecy about the Mount. Zechariah 14 says, The coming of the Lord will be on the Mount of Olives, which means for Jews, the Mount is a holy place for awaiting the Messiah. And Jesus, in his travels, would have passed over the mount, going back and forth from Jerusalem for any of the traditional festivals. And we see this in John 8. We get to Luke, Luke 19. When Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, he paused at the Mount of Olives. He weeps over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. All of this to say, the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, it was a familiar location to him. So while at this familiar location, he stops the team, the disciples. He tells them to pray and sit. Eight of the disciples stay at the entrance, wherever that might be, to the garden. The remaining three are invited along with Jesus to go deeper into the garden. These three are important. This is Peter, James, and John. They were at the Mount of Transfiguration. So what have they seen? They have seen the full picture of Jesus. They heard God say, listen to him. 
after the lightning, the sun, the bleached visual storm, Jesus was the one who touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. Now here's why this is important. These are the people you want with you when you tell them this. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. They would feel the weight of this more than anybody else. They had seen the divinity of Jesus, and now they were seeing the humanity of Jesus. He needed friends. He needed his closest community. He needed help. So he asks them to stay near to him and keep watch. Verse 32 through 34, it establishes where they went. It establishes where people were in the garden. It establishes the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples. It also establishes how he was feeling about this moment. This was an intensely emotional moment for Jesus. Verses 35 to 36. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. There's much here. So he takes some steps away from his close friends and he falls to the ground. Now, he just said something about his soul. He just told them that his soul was what? Overwhelmed. He's in a garden titled Oil Press. And he is under so much pressure that he collapses to the ground. The text does not say that he stopped for a moment, surveyed the ground for roots and tiny rocks, looked for those little pieces that would dig into his knees as he knelt. He didn't clear a space and then put his hands in a reverent position for prayer and then go down. He just hit the ground. He fell to the ground. He was overwhelmed. Think about it this way. Heart palpitations. Sweating. Shaking. Breathing problems. Don't skip by this overwhelmed. We have to wrestle with who we think Jesus is. So who do you think Jesus is? Here's another way to ask that question a little differently. Can Jesus Christ, superstar, superhero to children, super teacher, powerhouse preacher, answer man, healer of the sick, ghostbuster to the demon possessed, be overwhelmed? Answer that question to yourself. And what's great about this is that we, we have a couple problems here that are very historical, which is in our benefit. If something's historical like this, it means that people before us have already walked this path. And what path is that? The thought-provoking path of heresy. This is great. This is great. So um, a heresy often brings, a heresy springs up often from people who are trying to sort out their faith. You're trying to determine how do they respond to something in Scripture. Maybe they're responding to something that's part of their tradition. They're not necessarily trying to cause controversy as much as we might think. I would genuinely say that there's a couple beautiful parts to heresy. Here it is. It is an active work is an active work that someone is working to develop in their faith. 
the best part is their conviction is admirable. That conviction means that they aren't just going through the motions. Something has hit them, and they've decided to change their life because of it. Now, the other beautiful part of heresy is the development of creeds and baseline commitments that address the heresy, that unite a community. It addresses the concerns with whatever this person might be promoting or teaching. And it levels the playing field for everybody. This is where we get the Nicene Creed. This is where we get the Apostles' Creed. Those things came from people who are sorting out their faith and challenged the church on what it believed. We have creeds. So when I look at Jesus, when I read about Jesus, I do absolutely see him as fully divine. I think you do too. It's easy when we consider the miracles, the teachings, the interactions with strangers, the healings. Now, denying the divinity of Christ feels like an easy no-no. You get into an argument with someone, someone says, Jesus isn't God. Oh, there you go. You're ready. Fisticuffs. What about denying the humanity of Jesus. It's a quick scriptural response to this. 2 John 1, 7, only one chapter. 2 John 7, you could say. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Yikes, right? So in the 4th century, 4th century, Many centuries ago, humanity experienced something called Apollinarianism. Can you repeat it after me? Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Now, this was a movement that denied the true and complete humanity of Jesus. It said he did not have a human mind. He had a completely divine mind. And I believe that some people can slip into the idea that it was God in a man suit, as if God abducted the body of a man, that it was God impersonating a human. And this is the mistake, because Jesus is fully human. And it's here in the garden that we can most easily see the humanity of Christ. Throughout our lives, we struggle to conform our will to the Father's. There are intense moments in our lives where we question what is happening and would it please depart from us? Would it go away from us? And Jesus does this now. The beginning of his prayer shows this from the moment he opens his mouth. His first words, Abba, Father. If you've grown up in the church or been a Christ follower for some time, you probably have heard the word Abba. If you haven't heard it before, if it isn't in your lexicon, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance that uh, we might be missing something. Let me give it a perspective. It was worth it. Abba does mean father. Absolutely. It's better than that, though. Abba communicates a tenderness. It is endearment by a beloved child when they say it. It communicates affection. It also communicates dependency. This is the daddy. This is the papa of the Greek New Testament world. Adult to adult, we don't always do this. I I have stopped calling my father daddy. 
Something happens where we determine that adding a Y to things no longer is the mature response. Most of us just want to say, Dad. No, I am celebrating that my kids are growing up. I really am. It's amazing to watch them grow. And I believe there is a time to come where they will no longer walk into a room and start a story, start a request, start telling me about some dream they have for the future. A time will stop where they, they, a time will come where they don't start it with, hey, daddy. There's an affection and a dependency there where they want to come to me to share this with me. You know, you would think this word, Abba, would be all through the New Testament. It isn't. Spoken directly to God, it's here, only here, when Jesus prays in this moment. Let's talk about the prayer. The prayer in verse 36, I would call it a centering prayer. Based on our upbringing, many of us, perhaps even most of us in this room, know exactly what is to come in the future for Jesus. The cross and the details leading to it. We know it. Now, Jesus knew the cross. He knew the torture device that was used for political punishment. Anything that rose up against the ruling kingdom got the cross. I would say in his humanity, I would say that Christ did not know all the details, all the pain that was to come. He knew there was a price. But what was it going to be like? So a centering prayer aims to, to connect him heart to heart with God. That's what a centering prayer can do for us as well. It takes the busy, the frantic, the overwhelmed, and shifts you away from it. You don't, you don't hurry through these kinds of prayers. You seek God's presence and assistance in all things. It quiets the heart and aims for rest in God alone. You give up your own agenda. You give yourself to God. You say, I am yours. Remain with me. Please don't think that considering the humanity of Christ takes anything away from Christ. Don't think that Christ being overwhelmed works against him. Over the past couple of sermons, I found myself intentionally going to Moses and Elijah. And in preparation for today, in prayer for today, I had no intention of bringing them back. Moses and Elijah were done. But late last week as I was praying, I remembered my own words. It's kind of rough, right? Preaching to myself. I have referenced Elijah in my past two sermons. Specifically, I have mentioned 1 Kings 19. And in his full humanity, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah says, Enough, God, I can't handle this. I'm overwhelmed. End this. Take my life. Moses was also on the Mount of Transfiguration, just with Elijah as well. And before that, though, before the Mount of Transfiguration, he spoke to the Lord. He said in Numbers 11, the burden is too heavy for me. Go ahead and kill me. 
Elijah and Moses, heroes of every first century Jewish child saying, I am overwhelmed. The recentering on God is what happens next. There's no hurry to it. And with no hurry, we should be mindful of the potential gap in time that could be in verse 36. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And stop there. In the time from take this cup from me to the next phrase, there had to be an eternity of time. There's no hurry to a centering prayer. The next phrase, yet now what, yet not what I will, but what you will, moves away from my desires into God's desires. Whatever happens, whatever is to come, your will be done. Now I propose that there's a gap of time in these words. One, because I know how I might communicate with God in this time. I wouldn't wrap it up so quickly. And two, because of what happens in the following verses. We get a clue as to some of the times that's happening here. Verse 37 and 38. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's the question. Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? We have an incredibly simple prayer. And he's talking to Simon Peter and saying, not, not for just one hour. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So he talks to Peter in this moment. He's fallen asleep. Now, I have fallen asleep mighty fast in my lifetime. If my trusted leader and friend challenged me to stay awake, it would take some time for me to fall asleep. As I was starting to initially nod off in those moments, I would do whatever I could do to stay awake. I would stand up. I'd pace. Maybe I'd start pinching myself. I'd do whatever I could to remain alert. So when Jesus returned to his closest three disciples, they were asleep, and it's been about an hour. Enough time would have passed for them to fall asleep. And I think we could, maybe should, potentially cut the disciples some slack. <laughs> I think someone just fell asleep right now. <laughs> and here's why. They just came from an evening meal. And this wasn't just any evening meal. This was Passover. Let's take inventory of what occurs commonly and what did actually occur during this meal. First of all, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really long meal. Many, many hours. It likely stretched late into the night. Lots of talking. Lots of eating. Lots of relating. There's even arguing that's happening. And then, in all this time, you have three to four glasses of wine. <laughs> then they go for a walk to a garden, and Jesus tells them to stay alert, be on the watch and pray. Full stomachs, emotionally spent, physically tired from just the regular day, and he 
wants to take this 30 or so minute hike from their meal location. Sounds like the perfect formula for going to bed. <laughs> and that's the slack we can cut them. We can recognize what they've gone through. But they did fall asleep. And Jesus only rebukes Peter. And he challenges them again to watch and pray. Verses 39 through 46. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. So Jesus leaves and comes back. He then leaves and comes back, and he challenges them to stay awake, be alert, and be in prayer. And being alert is important because as Jesus is waking them for the last time, he likely sees the mob moving into the dark garden. If this is late at night, if they are unfamiliar with this space, they're most likely carrying torches and lanterns. Shadows being created, flickering. Jesus saw this coming in. Had they been awake, the disciples, they would have seen this happening. They would have seen the crowd coming, led by none other than their fellow disciple. Judas had left during the Passover. And I would say no one suspected him of anything. Here's why I say this. If the disciples actually suspected that he was going to betray Jesus, don't you think they, have would, they would have responded to that? Don't you think they would have stopped him right then and there? Did they know? Now, John 13, Jesus does say something to Judas that the group hears, but the disciples don't fully understand why it was said. Remember how I said the garden was a familiar location to Jesus? From a Jewish elder, lawyer, and priest perspective, if they're trying to arrest Jesus, if they want to know where he is or where he's going, they need an inside man to help them with that. That's Judas. The Garden of Gethsemane, the places that Jesus regularly went to on the Mount of Olives, would be most known by his close friends. And so in order to find him in the middle of the night, it would take this kind of intimate knowledge of his movements. And it was also with an intimate gesture that Judas identified Jesus in the crowd, a kiss. Often I work hard to defend many of the people in Scripture as we look at their failures. Peter has been a punchline for a long time, and I work to defend Peter. I try to make Peter a more complete person. But Judas? Man, that's a bit harder. I have yet to read much of any defense of Judas. 
But I want to suggest something. None of the disciples had a full understanding, a full idea of what was going to happen with Jesus, even though Jesus had told them. They still had an idea in their mind that Jesus would politically overthrow the kingdom, overthrow the whole system. This was the kingdom that they thought he referred to. If Judas was a zealot, a fighter, someone that was pro-war, pro-violence, pro-whatever it took to overthrow a system, he could have lost the patience for what he thought Jesus was attempting. Think about it this way. He believes Jesus is there to overthrow the system. He also believes Jesus is moving a little bit slow. So he attempts to kickstart the revolution. If I just put Jesus in the right situation, swords will be drawn and the rebellion begins. It wasn't just Judas that may have thought this. In verse 47, when one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now one of his disciples draws a sword and swings it, cutting off someone's ear. I can imagine the heart rate increasing of those ready to fight for the kingdom they think Jesus is ushering in. They are ready for this. Judas, ready for a fight. Peter, identified in another gospel as the sword swinger, ready to fight. Don't think for a minute that Peter was aiming to take off an ear. Whether it was a horizontal swing of the sword or a vertical swing of the sword. Who aims for an ear? <laughs> he was aiming to kill. It was either a headshot or a neck shot, and he just has bad aim. And Malchus was this man's name. And as recorded by Luke, in the book of Luke, the doctor, Luke, writes that Malchus was then healed by Jesus. If this wasn't enough, Jesus uses his words to then set the record straight. Verses 48 through 50. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted, deserted him and fled. The disciples, Judas, Peter, the mob, they have not grasped, excuse me, they have not grasped why Jesus is here. Those words, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? And I believe this phrase was for far more than the mob that was there to capture him. I see this also as a rebuke for the disciples, for all to hear. And believe those words would ring in the ears of those still present as they fled. Jesus is alone. Not one of his disciples is with him anymore. The close three, the ones he invited into a close community of prayer, gone. 
the, the eight that were at the entrance to the garden, no longer there. He's alone. And there's still some level of fear, but Jesus is clear because of his time of prayer that this is the path he must be on. We consider our own hardships as we look in light of the hardships of Jesus. Our response to hardship determines who we are and where we put our hope. Do we have, do I have, do you have, put your name there. Do we have a centering prayer time which can quiet the clamor of life that reminds us in our humanity to realign with Abba? To set down whatever weapons we might be holding for our own glory and not the Father's. What do we have to set down? The screen in front of you the app, and even the back of your bulletin all have questions for reflection. So for your own practice and reflection, here they are. I challenge you to get a current hardship in your mind and decide how do you feel about this hardship. Is it injustice? Does someone else deserve this? And whatever it is, just tell the truth. You know in that moment what you feel with those hardships. And then you soften it when you talk to God. Just name it. Tell him the truth about what you're experiencing. And consider the next questions. Where is there evidence of God's presence in this hardship? And this one's going to be tough. Is there anything you can be thankful for? Thankful in hardships. And finally, if you cannot find God in your hardship, spend time with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he want to tell you about hardship? There's going to be a time where the team will join me back up on stage. And these are questions on the back of your bulletin on the screen because there will be time for you to ask these questions of yourself to be in prayer. Pray with me as we go into this time. God in heaven, what a gift that we have the testimony of Jesus, that we get to see how the disciples acted, that we get to see their behavior. And for myself, I get to see where I set myself in that space. And while in that space, I have to ask, what, what hardships am I experiencing? What am I attempting to hide from you? Lord, I ask for myself and everyone in this room that as we attempt to hide how we really feel about situations, Lord, would you bring those words to our mind? Would we say them out loud with our mouths to you so that as we go through this hardship, we come out more complete in how you have created us?
would we have that awareness of who we are, what our relationship is with you. Lord, in this time, would we have ears to listen and a bold mouth to speak to you. Amen. Let's stand together. There's more to respond to. It doesn't end here. In our bulletins, each week you have an opportunity to respond. As you've prayed in this time right now, if a, if a hardship, if you've been able to identify it, we'd be honored to pray with you. If you want more prayer right now, you can come to me. There's somebody who will be under the cross to pray with you as well, to celebrate in identifying that and to help you sing that. It is well with your soul. May the God who goes before us grant us wisdom, wisdom enough to live this week in places of communion with him. And may God grant us the courage enough to follow Christ into the difficult places, into the garden, a place you would rather avoid. Thank you for being here this week. Come back next week. Before you leave, greet the community that's here with you right now. Enjoy that time of fellowship. We'll see you next week.